Let us pray. O gracious God and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we are in Romans again today, Romans chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 8. And we're going to take a look, in particular, at verses 22 and following. But we'll start reading today at verse 18, and we'll read through at least verse 27. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Today we're going to focus, as we begin, on this section where Paul speaks of the redemption of our bodies. Last week we took a look at the redemption of creation. He says that all of creation is groaning as in travail, as in childbirth. And now Paul brings up this whole subject of the redemption of our bodies. Now one of the points that I made last week is that if we pay close attention to the text, often what we discover is that there's something being taught there that is not exactly what perhaps we would have imagined. Uh, we said when it came to the redemption of the creation, um, this was certainly true because we saw that what God is really doing in salvation is he is planning to make all things new. I think it's often the case when we think about salvation, most of us, we think of salvation in terms of our own personal being. Uh, we think of getting our ticket punched and going to heaven when we die. That's what salvation is. I, I want to be saved. Why? So that when I die, I know for certainty that I'm going to heaven, that I'm not going to go to hell. And so that's why we want to be saved. And certainly that is a good reason. But Paul makes it very clear, God's plan of salvation is much, much bigger than that. It's not just about us as individuals. It is about that, but it is also about the whole of creation, the redemption of creation. Back in 1970, and some of you may have read this, there was a bestseller book by Hal Lindsey entitled The Late Great Planet Earth. Did anybody out there ever read The Late Great Planet Earth? 
Well, if you've read that book, you know that basically what Hal Lindsey was talking about is the fact that the world was winding down, it's going to be destroyed, and uh, the key is for us as individuals to know Christ so that we can escape that great cataclysmic event when it occurs. And basically what he implies is that the world as we know it is just going to be scrapped. Um, it is fractured, it is broken, uh, it is in the process of decay, and you and I need to escape it before it's too late. And what is God going to do with the creation? What is he going to do with the late great planet Earth? Basically, he's going to throw it onto the scrap heap. Now, that's the idea. And I think that's the idea that many Christians have today, that my goal is to escape this world, which is in the process of perishing. Well, Paul would certainly agree that the world is in a bad way. Jesus certainly would have agreed with that. That's one of the reasons why he spoke of us as being salt in the world. It's because salt has the effect of stemming the tide of decay. And that's what we are called to do. We are to be salt and light in the world and stem the tide of decay. Paul, certainly in Romans chapter 1, talks about the terrible plight of the world. He talks about that downward spiral. But it's very clear in the New Testament, God is not just finished with the creation. The part of his plan in redeeming us is that he might redeem the whole of the world. You get a picture of this in the book of Revelation. It's a book that many people either love or they fear. It just depends upon who you are. But go to Revelation chapter 21 because while there's a great deal of symbolism in this book, it nevertheless is painting a picture of the things that are to come. And this is part of John's vision, Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, I suppose for many people, when they hear the lineup, uh, you love the sea. Uh, it would not be heaven to my wife if there was no ocean there, no sea. Um, she loves the sea. What, a, what is being said here, however, is not that there will be no physical sea. Understand that the Jewish people living in the first century were not a seafaring people. Uh, they were landlubbers for the most part. They were not known as a seafaring danger. So when the book of Revelation says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more, what it means is that there's no more chaos, there's no more confusion, there's nothing that is a threat. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I think the New Testament scholar who's done a particularly good job of helping us to understand this and appreciate it more is N.T. Wright, the former Bishop of Durham, England. He's written extensively on this. I don't agree with him on everything that he has written, but I would say 98% of what he writes is extremely good. And this is one of the things that he points out, that we often as Christians talk about dying and going to heaven, but he says that's not our final destination. Heaven is a way station. 
But our ultimate destination, he says, is a new heaven and a new earth. It is God making all things new. And that's one of the reasons why, as Christians, we should be concerned for the environment. I think it's a great tragedy that we live in an age where everything, it seems, it doesn't matter what it is, gets politicized. You know, if, if, if you are um, somebody who is concerned about the environment, well, then you oftentimes get labeled as a liberal. If you're somebody who says we need to be, um, use the resources that are at our disposal and perhaps we need to go ahead and drill for fossil fuels and so forth, well, then you automatically get labeled a conservative. And there is this great divide that exists between us. One of the things I love about the Bible is that the Bible basically says a plague upon both your houses. Uh, you both got it wrong. Now, one of the things I've noticed about Jesus, incidentally, is that Jesus was not liked by either the very conservative people of his day or the very liberal people of his day. Did you ever notice that? Jesus didn't get along with the scribes and the Pharisees. They are on the conservative end of the spectrum. There's no doubt about that. But nor did he get along with the Sadducees, who were on the liberal end of the spectrum. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, for example. They only took seriously, and not even really seriously, the first five books of the Bible. The Pharisees, on the other hand, well, my goodness, they kept every jot and tittle of the law. They made sure that you didn't travel too far on the Sabbath day. They made sure that even if you spit in the, on the ground, it didn't make a furrow in the ground so that you weren't in violation of the Mosaic law for plowing. And one of the things you'll notice is that while they didn't like each other, they liked Jesus even less. Because Jesus called them both out. And there is a sense in which that is what the scripture does to us. As Christians, you and I should be deeply concerned for the environment. The creation matters to God. We looked last week at what God did in Genesis. And after each successive act of creation, he pronounced a blessing on it, didn't he? It is good. It is good. It is very good. But at the same time, God also gave man dominion over the creation, didn't he? He said, subdue it. So there has to be a balance in here for us as Christians, and that's what the Bible calls for. I think that's the thing that we struggle with as human beings more than anything else, is finding the balance, don't we? I said that's one of the reasons why I think grace is so hard for us. You know what the word for sin really means in the New Testament? Most of you probably know. Missing the mark. That's right, missing the mark. It's the idea that you're, you're shooting a bow and arrow, for example, at a target. And hitting the mark is hitting the bullseye. But sinning is missing the mark. Now, you've heard the expression, a miss is as good as a mile. Even if you miss that bullseye by just a few inches, you've still missed it. Just the same as if you had what? Missed it completely. Now, what do we want to do in our culture? Well, in our culture, we want to do one of two things. When somebody sins or somebody falls into sin, what we want to do is we either want to just dismiss, dismiss what they've done and say, oh, well, it's okay, don't worry about it, you know. God just wants you to be happy. That's, what we do is we, we lower the standard, don't we? we? We lower the standard. Or 
When somebody misses the mark, what do we do? We condemn them. And one of the things that's so uncomfortable about being a Christian is that you have to keep one foot in the world of a high moral standard and one foot in the world of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. As Christians, we cannot lower the standard. God has set the standard. It's not for us to move. That's exactly what the culture is doing, but we cannot do that. On the other hand, when people sin, we are to offer grace, pardon, mercy, forgiveness. Now, it's a whole lot easier to stand either in the world of the high moral standard or in the world of grace, mercy, and forgiveness, pat you on the head, don't worry about it. The hard part for Christians is that we have to straddle those two worlds, don't we? We have to uphold both of them. And that is what we have to do when it comes to the creation. We have to recognize that the creation is important. We need to care for it. We need to tend for it, tend to it, but we don't need to worship it. So that's what Paul does, is he brings a balance to this, and he broadens our perspective on these matters. And the same is true when he begins to speak to us about not only the redemption of the creation, but also, he says, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Let's read it again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. There is a phrase or a word that gets repeated over and over again in this section, and that is the word groaning. You see it in verse 22, we're told the whole creation groans. We see it in verse 23 where it says, we ourselves groan. And you see it there in verse 26, and it is the Holy Spirit who groans. Uh, the word is an interesting word. It is the word stenazo in Greek. And it means to be distressed, groaning as under a weight. But it is a groaning that is hopeful. It is a groaning that is hopeful. Remember the context here. Paul is saying that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the what? The glory that is to come. The glory that God has promised for us. And so we are groaning. The creation is groaning, longing for redemption, for mankind to be put back into his proper place so that he can extend the blessings of Eden, as it were, to the whole of creation, that man can fulfill his calling. We ourselves groan inwardly in our bodies as we wait for redemption. And even the Holy Spirit, we're told, and this is an interesting one, groans as he intercedes on our behalf. The kind of groaning that Paul has in mind here, as I said, is an expectant groaning. And I use that word specifically. 
It's like a woman in childbirth. She is groaning. It is acute. But it is hopeful. Because if everything goes well, the result is what? Happiness. My wife has delivered four children. She's, she's amazing. She did all of that without a C-section or anything else. All four of our children were delivered naturally. And my wife's not a big woman, but all four of our children, not a single one of them was under nine pounds. One was 10 pounds, three ounces. And he was early. Yeah, she's a real hero. But it was painful, let me tell you something. It was, it was painful. But I noticed with her that the minute that that child was placed in her arms, the thought of the pain was gone instantly. Once she had that child, the memory of everything that she had just been through was completely gone. That's the kind of groaning that Paul is talking about here. He's saying, we're groaning. The whole of creation is groaning, but it's a hopeful groaning. The creation knows that God has a plan, and that plan is that all things shall be made new. All things shall be restored. And the same is true, he says, for us. He says, we groan, longing for not only the redemption of creation, but the redemption of our bodies. Again, here, we need to expand our perspective. Just as we said that God is not going to take the creation and throw it in the trash bin because the creation is important to him, so God is going to redeem our bodies. Do you realize that part of our salvation is that you and I are going to be given new bodies? I think sometimes when we think about salvation, we think about dying, as I said, going to heaven. And when we think about going to heaven, we simply think about being up there in a spiritual sort of existence, don't we? Sometimes that's the way we talk about the body. Oh, the body really doesn't matter. The body is just a shell. I want you to understand that that it may be a very popular notion in the world today, but it is not a particularly biblical nor Christian belief. Christians believe that the body matters. And the body matters because just as God is going to redeem the whole of creation, so he's going to redeem us physically. Back in the first century, there was a Greek philosophy that made its way into some Christian circles. It was known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek gnosis, meaning knowledge. And basically what the Gnostics argued was that matter does not matter. The only thing that really matters is spirit. In fact, they argued that anything physical was really confining. It, it was evil. And, and the whole point of salvation is to escape this body with all of its problems, all of its corruption, all of its limitation, so that we can attain the spiritual, which is limitless. And so the Gnostics really didn't care what you did with your body. Do with your body whatever you want. It really doesn't matter in the end. Again, it is not just a shell. It really is something that confines you. The, the body really is a prison for the spirit or the soul. Well, there are some points of the New Age movement that teach that as well, that your body really doesn't matter. What we're trying to attain to is a new spiritual level. 
I want to address this just briefly because I think it's important that we understand what the scripture really teaches about the body. And we need to understand that the body is important because you and I, as human beings, made in the image of God, are basically made up of three parts. Now, there's some debate amongst theologians about this, whether we are what they refer to as trichotomous or dichotomous. Uh, that is to say, whether we're made up of three parts or whether we're made up of two parts. I think as you progress through the Old Testament in particular, what you begin to see is more of a trichotomous view. Now, if you hold to a dichotomous view, and I'll explain what these are, you're not a heretic. But I do think that the trichotomous view is actually more biblical as you read through the Old Testament. So what is the dichotomous view, first of all? That as human beings, we are made up of two parts. We are made up of soul slash spirit, and we are made up of body. All right, those are the two parts. Now, what's the trichotomous view? The trichotomous view is the view that the soul and the spirit are actually two separate things. And then we have body. So there's three parts to that. I think that's an accurate view for a number of reasons. One of them is that I think that's what we see in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, this trichotomous view. So what is the soul? Well... I would say that the soul is that part of us that has personality, for example. Each of one of us is unique. Each one of us has our own personality. And I say that I think that that is correct because if you look in the Old Testament, you're, you see some animals are even described as soulish animals. The word for this is nephesh. Uh, how many of you are dog lovers? Now. How many of you have had multiple dogs? How many of you would agree that your dogs have personality? <clears throat> and different personalities, don't they? So that, when I use the word soul in this respect, that's what I mean. I mean, there's, it's that part of us that has personality. Now, plants do not have. They are living creatures, they're living things, but they do not have personality. So you see, when God creates, God creates certain things, and as he goes up the ladder, things become more complicated, more involved, until finally he creates man in his own image. So yes, there are some things that are more important than other things in the creation. A dog, for example, would be more important than a rhododendron. Even though they're both living creatures, one is a soulish, nephish animal, if you will. Well, then what is the spirit? The spirit is that part of us that has God consciousness. And this is really what distinguishes us from the animals. That while we have personality, human beings are conscious. They are aware of the fact that they are not alone. They are conscious. They are aware of the fact that there is right and wrong. There is that awareness that there is a creator, a maker. That's the spiritual side of us. And then, of course, the third side of us, which plants, animals, human beings, we all share a kind of body. Now, one of the things that you'll notice that happens in the fall is that all three of these things die. God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of the tree in the midst of the garden, you will what? Die. You will surely die. 
And you think about it, that's exactly what happened to them. Now, they didn't die physically, automatically. That's what we always think of. But think about what happened to them. The first thing that happens is that they died in terms of their spiritual relationship to God. The way it's described is that God would meet them in the cool of the day and walk with them in the garden. Remember that old hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. You know that old hymn. It's just that picture of intimacy with God. But after they have sinned, what's the first thing they do? They flee from God's presence and hide themselves amongst the trees of the, among the trees of the garden. Because what? Their relationship with God has broken. That is to say, they begin to die spiritually. That part of them that is aware of their relationship with God, that is broken. And we've been dealing with the consequences of that ever since. But something else begins to die as well. That soulish part of them, that, that personality, that, 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 that part that understands right from wrong even. They begin to play the blame game, don't they? Eve, what have you done? Adam, what have you done? Well, the woman you gave me. And of course, what happens finally? Well, they die physically. Well, you see, that's what we are as human beings. We, we are not just spirits. We are not just bodies. We are all of those things. We are soul, spirit, and body. And all three of those things are in the process of decline, decay, and death as a consequence of the fall. And when Paul says that God is going to redeem our bodies, what he means is that it's going to be a redemption of all of these things. Our relationship with God is going to be ultimately restored. There is a sense in which that has already happened. That's what this eighth chapter of Romans is all about. That relationship with God that was broken has been restored. Our minds are renewed. Paul talks about that. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is to say, that soulish part of us that understands right and wrong, it is being renewed as a consequence. And one day, he says, our bodies will be renewed as well. This is why we can sometimes speak of salvation as a past, present, and future phenomenon. Somebody says, are you, are you saved? Yes, you can say, yes, I have been saved. Meaning that 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. The full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. He did that 2,000 years ago. But you can also say, I'm in the process of being saved. Meaning that I have come to believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior and he is now at work in my life by the power of the Holy Spirit to remake me into the image of his Son. But you can also speak of salvation as a future phenomenon because we know that while we're here on this earth, we are not everything we are meant to be. But the time is coming when we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. That's what God is doing in salvation. It's not just about, oh, well, you're going to die and you're going to go to heaven and you're going to sit up there and pluck harps for all eternity. That's not the picture of heaven at all. It is a picture of God recreating all things. Redeeming the creation and redeeming us as well, including these bodies of ours. Incidentally, this was one of the reasons why the early Christians never cremated. 
Did you know that? Cremation is a rather new phenomenon for Christians. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Uh, please don't imply that I'm, or come to the conclusion that that's what I'm implying. That is not what I'm saying. I just want you to understand that until really the 20th century, Christians did not cremate their dead. They buried their dead. Pagans cremated their dead. The Romans, the Greeks, they cremated their dead, but Christians always buried their dead. And do you know why? Because it was a testimony to the redemption of their bodies. To the idea that one day God was going to redeem all things. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, keep your finger there in Romans and turn one book to your right, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I suspect this is a passage that we are going to hear on Easter. I'm not preaching on 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter. I'm preaching on the gospel. But um, this is a passage that is often read on Easter because it is a chapter about the resurrection. Now let's just go ahead and read through these Verses. I know it's rather lengthy, but listen to the way Paul puts it. He starts off talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's really not what this section of 1 Corinthians is about. It's not about Jesus' resurrection. That's just the beginning of it. So look at what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. You'll notice that it's past, present, and future, isn't it? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past, in which you stand, present, in which you are being saved, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed." Many scholars believe that that section where Paul talks about Christ being crucified, buried, and raised is one of the earliest Christian hymns. They believe that Paul is actually quoting from a hymn. Now, bear in mind that Paul was writing very close to these events. The oldest writings that we have in the New Testament are not the Gospels. The oldest writings that we have in the New Testament are the epistles of Paul. So he is writing very early, sometimes 20 years after these events, in the 50s. And already Christians had a creed, as it were. Sometimes in the Eucharist we say, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. And what do we say? Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. 
Well, many scholars believe that's what Paul was quoting here, an early Christian hymn. So even though he's writing very soon after the events themselves, already the Christians had a hymn. Already the Christians had a creed, as you were, and that creed involved the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what Paul is going to go on to say in the verses that we're about to read is that there are implications of that. All right, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again, and here are the implications for your life and mine. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's what we received, that's what we passed on to you, he says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. That's a tip-off that what Paul is talking about there is not Christ's resurrection. He's not talking about Christ's resurrection here. He's talking about our resurrection. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He goes on, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. First Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What had happened to the church in Corinth, in Corinth and by the way, when I think about the Corinthian church, I always think this is Paul's problem child. You know, um, sometimes you have a child um, and they're all compliant but one. And, and you, that's your problem child. Uh, Paul established many churches during the course of his earthly ministry. Um, as you know, he established churches in Ephesus and Philippi. The church that he established in Corinth was his problem child. Paul wrote two letters to the church in Corinth, and both of them are designed to correct problems in the church. Paul's letters were action grams. Sometimes he was writing them to encourage people. Sometimes he was writing to correct them because they had gone off the rails, and that was the problem here in Corinth. And in the 15th chapter, he is addressing one of the major problems in the church in Corinth, and that was this creep of Gnosticism into the life of the church. The people had started to doubt the resurrection. Now, we don't know if they were actually doubting the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was raised bodily on the first day of the week. It doesn't appear that that's the case. Apparently, they felt that Jesus had been raised from the dead. But they doubted whether anybody else was going to be raised from the dead. And what Paul was trying to tell them, that if... If that is the case, if, if you doubt the resurrection in general, then you might as well doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular. 
And if you doubt the resurrection of Jesus Christ in particular, well, he says that has implications for everything. It means, number one, that you're still in your sins. It means, number two, that your relationship with God has not been restored. And number three, it means that there is really no hope for you. The only hope you have, he says, is for this life only. And if that is the case, he says, we are of all men most to be pitied. No, Paul wants us to understand that part of our salvation is that God is going to raise us as Jesus was raised. It's interesting to note that he describes Jesus as the first fruits. That is to say that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to all of us. It's going to happen to all of us one day. You know, the Jews never expected anybody to be resurrected. At least not in the midst of history. When Jesus came to Bethany after Lazarus had died, he met Martha on the street and she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And he said, your brother will rise again. She said, oh, I know at the end of time. And Jesus said, no, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe. And of course, she was about to see what God was capable of doing. But the point is that Jesus is the first fruits. What happened to him is going to happen to you and to me. And that means that God is going to redeem everything. When you get to heaven one day, when you are in the presence of God, or rather when there is a new heaven and a new earth, you and I are going to be recognized for who we are. We're not going to be just disembodied spirits. We're going to be given new bodies. We'll still have our personalities. We'll still be recognizable. But thanks be to God, they are not going to be bodies that are subject to corruption and decay and disease. They're going to be like Christ's resurrection body. You you notice that when Jesus was resurrected, the Gospels go to great lengths to point out that it was a physical body. Jesus ate fish for Pete's sakes. Broiled fish. I find that fascinating that the Gospel tells us it was broiled as opposed to fried. Why does it do that? Because it's an eyewitness account. That's what he ate. Jesus said, come. Probe the nail prints in my hand. Take your hand. Stick it into my side. The Gospels go to great lengths to tell us that this was a physical, bodily resurrection. And yet, though it was a physical, bodily resurrection, it was different than his previous body. It was still Jesus. They recognized that it's Jesus. They heard his voice. They recognized that voice. But this was a body that even though it still bore the wounds, was different. It was not subject to corruption anymore. You you know that what Lazarus experienced was not a resurrection. Do you understand that? The widow of Nain's son, whom Jesus raised from the dead, did not experience a resurrection. Jairus' daughter, the little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, those were not resurrections. Only Jesus experienced a resurrection. Well, you say, well, they were raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. Yes, but it's different. What's the difference? Those first three were resuscitations. That is to say they were dead, and Jesus brought them back to life. But what he brought back to life was the same body that had died. And all three of those people died again. 
because it was the same mortal body. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was given a new resurrection body. It looked like the old one, but it was different. It was no longer subject to corruption. It was a body in which Jesus would never die again. I want you to understand that's what you and I have to look forward to. Remember, this, this whole chapter in Romans chapter 8 is about encouragement. Paul says, be encouraged, even in the midst of your suffering, even in the midst of your pain, your disappointment, your loss. You can be encouraged. Why? Because the future is hopeful. And part of that future is that these bodies will be made new. No longer subject to weakness. Think about that as you grow older. Don't you remember the things that you were able to do when you were younger? How far you were able to walk? How much energy you had? Now it's a chore just to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, think about that. What God is going to do is give us altogether new bodies. And so he says we groan, we groan inwardly, but we groan confidently. Go back to Romans and let's just read what Paul says again. And not only the creation, verse 23 but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul says this is our hope. It is our hope. Now the problem, of course, is that word hope. What do we mean by hope? I think today, most people, when they think of hope, think of wishful thinking. I mean, that, that's what we think of. I hope I don't owe anything on taxes this year. There's no guarantee. It's, it's sort of wishful thinking. I hope when the, the accountant hands back my taxes, I don't owe anything. And I'm speaking personally right now. I'm hoping I don't owe anything. But that's what we mean by hope. We, we mean hope against hope. Wishful thinking. It, it's no guarantee. It's just our desire. But do you understand that when the Bible speaks about hope, it, that is not what the Bible means by hope at all. When the Bible speaks of hope, it means something that is a guarantee. It just hasn't come to pass yet. We haven't experienced it yet, but we absolutely know that it's going to happen. There's an old phrase in the Navy prayer book, when people are buried at sea. And it's wonderful, it's beautiful. They'll tip the body over the side of the ship, body goes down into the ocean, and the minister says these words, we commit their body to the deep and their souls to God in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ, at whose coming the sea shall give up her dead. That's beautiful, isn't it? But what I love is the phrase, the sure and certain hope. Because that's what the Bible's talking about. It's a sure and certain hope that one day our bodies shall be renewed. We shall be made like unto Christ. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more corruption. For the former things have passed away. All things are made new. And the only reason that it is hope is because it hasn't yet come to pass. But it will. It will. There are lots of things in life like that, aren't they? Things that have not yet come to pass, but we know they will. And so we wait for them with expectation, with excitement. It's like a child on Christmas Eve. When I was a kid, I used to always pray, Lord, please don't come back before tomorrow morning. I, I, I want to make sure I get all of my presents. You know what that's like for a child on Christmas Eve? They, they can't sleep because they know tomorrow's coming. It hasn't come yet. I don't know about you, but I, I used to sometimes find the day after Christmas to be the biggest letdown in the world. Christmas Eve was so exciting. Christmas Day was so wonderful, and then there's the aftermath. It's all over. It's sort of the party blues. We should be like a child, you see, on the night before Christmas. We're longing for it. We're anticipating. We know it's going to come. And we cannot wait to see what God has in store for us. That is the hope, Paul says, in which we are saved. It is a sure and certain hope, the hope of glory which is Christ in you. Now because Paul understands that we are weak, and he knows that even in our hope we sometimes waver, he goes on to explain three things that are a guarantee of the hope that is to come. The first that he refers to is the redemption of our bodies. He says, we know that because Christ has been raised, we will be raised. Second, he speaks of our adoption as sons. He's already spoken about that sonship adoption. He says it up there in verses 14 and following, for all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. How do we know that all that God has prepared for us is going to come to pass? Well, it's because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, and he's the first fruits, the redemption of our bodies. Second reason is because we have been adopted as God's children. Now, I think what Paul has in mind here when he talks about adoption is a particular ceremony that took place in first century Roman culture. Uh, when a Roman boy became a man, reached a point of manhood, they would have a great service. It was like a bar mitzvah in, in Jewish days. That, the Jews, when you have a bar mitzvah, that's when a, a young boy becomes a man. 
and is recognized as a man and is a full-fledged member of the community. Well, the Romans had something like that as well. When a young man reached his age of accountability, his father would declare him a man and they would have an adoption ceremony. Now this could be for a child that would have been adopted or even a natural child. Everybody went through this ceremony. And when you were adopted, what happened was that you would shave your face for the very first time. You know, the Jews always wore beards in those days, but the Romans and the Greeks were always clean-shaven. But you wore a beard until you became a man, at which point you were clean-shaven. Then you would be presented in the forum, and then you would be robed in a toga. And it was symbolic of the fact that you were becoming, or you would become, a man. And there were a number of things that went along with that. First of all, you were recognized as a man. Second of all, you were given privilege. You had the rights of Roman citizenship at that point. And all the privileges that went along with that. And finally, you were given responsibility. Up to this point, you were given no responsibilities. But now, all of a sudden, you are given responsibility. Well, that's what Paul says has happened for you and me. You and I have been adopted as God's son. And we have been declared, what? His children. And we've been given great privileges. The privilege of being able to call God what? Abba, Father. And we have been given a responsibility to live in an altogether new way. This too, he says, is evidence of the glory and the inheritance that is to come. Back in, I think it was 1967 or 1968, Queen Elizabeth II had an investiture service in Wales for her son, the present king. He became the Prince of Wales. You understand that Wales is a principality. The real monarch of Wales is the Prince of Wales. And they didn't have a Prince of Wales until she placed the crown on her son's head. And then he became the ruler of that principality. Paul says there's a sense in which that is what God is doing with us. He's made us sons and daughters and heirs. He has invested us with power and with responsibility. Here's the third reason why we know that all of this is a sure and certain hope. Not only do we have the redemption of our bodies, the assurance of that, not only have we been adopted as God's children, but the final thing is this. All of this is certain because we have been given the first fruits of the Spirit. I want you to understand that everything that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8 is for Christians only. All of the promises that he makes here are not for unbelievers. It's for Christians only. It's for those who've been adopted. It's for those, he says, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What does he mean when he says the first fruits? Well... In the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, they had a festival 
It was called the Festival of First Fruits. And you would take the first fruits of the harvest, a stalk of grain, for example, and you would bring it up to the tabernacle or you would bring it up to the temple and you would wave it before the Lord as an offering, a promise that this was the first fruits, but there was more to come. When Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the first fruits, what he is saying is he is the down payment. He is the earnest money. He is the guarantee that all of these other things, the redemption of the creation, the redemption of our bodies, a world made new, an altogether new existence without corruption or sighing or grief or pain. It is all going to come and we know it because we have been given the first fruits. It's a reversal of Leviticus, you see. You brought your first fruits to the Lord. What Paul is saying is that the Lord has already given you his first fruits. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells within you. And he is the guarantee that everything else will come to you in good time. It is a sure and certain hope. You know, if there's one thing that is in short supply in the world today, when you look at what's going on, it's hope, isn't it? So many people are hopeless. But Christians should be the most hopeful people in the world. Because as Paul reminds us, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that God has revealed and prepared for us. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that the things that you make are good and certainly so much has been corrupted as a consequence of sin and the fall. The world groans as in travail, but it groans in hopeful expectation for the redemption of the sons of men. We ourselves groan. We don't always understand how it is that the creation groans. We understand even less how God the Holy Spirit should groan. We certainly groan, and we know that. We groan for all sorts of reasons. But it's a hopeful groaning because we know that it does not compare to the glory that is to be revealed to us, a glory that will involve even the redemption of our bodies. So give us courage in the midst of the things that we do not understand, in the midst of this life that is filled with disappointment and loss and discouragement, to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, on that sure and certain hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.